I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. Hi, Agnes. How are things? <laughs> Good, thanks. How are you, Ben? Actually, Agnes, I am great. And you know why? Because we've got a very exciting development on the tech front of our podcast. It's a game changer. It is a complete game changer. Set the scene for us. What are we talking about? Well, we, in our media studio, for the past six months, we have been stealing, or no, borrowing tables from around Chatham House, largely the canteen. From various rooms. Which does mean carrying tables through busy meeting rooms. And now... To the intense chagrin, 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 chagrin of the catering staff. Yes. Apologies, Harbour and Jones. Yep, sincere apologies. And now we have a special trolley. We have a pod trolley. It's the most beautiful creation I squealed when I saw it literally it was quite interesting (laughs) I I it's I think one of the best things that's happened to me this year it's got wheels everything's mounted the the mics just sit on the table yeah there's no setting up or unsetting we've got color-coded tags on each mic and you know you've made it when you've got color-coded tags this is the big time absolutely this is the big time um and we've got to thank our uh, our AV manager Robin Thank you so much, Robin. Who has masterminded this whole development. (laughs) Um, And has sent, I think, the cheeriest follow-up email I received this week, which was regarding the trolley. Trolley update. And and feedback on the trolley. Absolutely. And basically, we love it. We do love the trolley. So this episode is the first episode we've recorded with our pod trolley. And uh, it may make no difference whatsoever to the sound, but to our state of mind, it's been transformative. It really has So I'm great. So how are you? I'm, again, just thrilled about the trolley. Although I do feel like potentially we should come up for a name for the trolley. Okay, yeah. Well, let's crowdsource. Yeah, we'll have a think about that. <laughs> we'll let's give the trolley think. an identity. We could do a little Twitter poll. <laughs> we could, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but who did you speak to Enough this week, Enough of the trolley. <laughs> this week, my interview was something a bit different mm-hmm. in that it concerned fiction, a novel called Shatila Stories, which has been published by Pyrene Press, which is a, a great independent publisher that deals solely with translated fiction. Mm-hmm. And the key difference with this book, the, the thing that marks it out, is that it's a creation of writers who live in the Shatila refugee camp in Beirut. In Mm -hmm. Lebanon, nine different writers uh, who participated in a workshop, a creative writing workshop with publishers from Pyrene in the refugee camp and then contributed stories which have been woven into this novel about what it means to be a refugee, about what it's like to live in a camp. I mean, this camp has been in existence continuously since 1949. Um, originally housing Palestinians and now also it's inhabited by Syrian refugees, obviously, um, who have been fleeing much more recent conflicts. But it's this whole sort of continuous ecosystem that gives the lie to the idea that refugee camps are this kind of temporary arrangement, Mm. you know? Yeah. This is 70 years old. It's as old as the UN. Wow. And And... it's nothing, and their conditions are really, really difficult. Their lives are horrendously difficult. And you must be talking about several generations. Yeah, I think you are. Yeah, 
Absolutely. So I spoke to the publisher, um, Micah Zierwogel from mm-hmm. Pyrene Press, and also the editor of the book, um, who is called Suhe Halal, mm-hmm. and she's Syrian herself, and she's got some really interesting perspectives to bring. So Amazing. it's a hopefully good interview. Yeah. But who did you speak to, Agnes? Uh, so this week I spoke to Joyce Hackney, who is a cyber research fellow here at Chatham House in the International Security Department and also co-editor of the Journal of Cyber Policy about a report that she wrote that came out in July about cybercrime legislation in the Gulf states mm. because obviously cybercrime is quite a new thing yeah. <laughs> and you're talking about quite new new states as well who haven't really been around for that long. Yeah, just remind me who the which Gulf states we're talking about. We're talking about the GCC. When we say the GCC, who's... Who does that comprise? So the GCC is it's like a political and economic union, which is all of the Arab Gulf states except for Iraq. Okay. So you're talking about Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And what it's interesting that basically cybercrime, what we're talking about is largely like fraud and theft rather than hacking. Because those those crimes tend to follow money, right. as Joyce points out, yeah. and those states are wealthy, so um, it's about what they're what they're doing to try and combat that. Okay, and also how they're sort of linking it into their the identity they choose to push in other laws, so freedom of expression, what you're allowed to criticise, what you can't. Ah. Well, I mean, that sounds great. Let's just have a listen. Right, so I'm here with Joyce Hackme, who is the Cyber Research Fellow at the International Security Department and co-editor of the Journal of Cyber Policy. Hello, Joyce. Hello, Agnes. <laughs> and we're here to talk about your recent report, which is called Cybercrime Legislation in the GCC Countries Fit for Purpose, which came out in July. Yes, that's yes. correct. So what is, this, what is the current sort of cybercrime issues in the GCC mm. countries? What, what are because I don't know anything about it. At okay. All. <laughs> so let me tell you. Uh, so basically, uh, cybercrime is a growing security threat in the GCC countries. And when you say GCC countries, obviously we mean Oman, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, Bahrain, and Kuwait. So it is a growing threat there. And we've been working on a project looking at the emerging security threats in that part of the world. So one of the things, obviously, was cybersecurity and the increasing cybercrime. And because, you know, and here in the context of this paper, we talk about cybercrime not as the um, like geopolitically motivated, but rather the one that is motivated for financial reasons. Mm-hmm. And normally crime, like for financial motivations, follows money. So basically, uh, in the GCC, there is a growing cybercrime. So we looked at what the governments are doing uh, to combat this cybercrime. And in particular, we looked at the laws. And we asked the question, are these laws fit for purpose? And basically came up with two main observations. So the first observation is that these laws are a good step. However, they're an incomplete step. Uh, They omit essential elements needed to combat cybercrime. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. And the second thing is that they play an adverse impact when it comes to freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. So uh, just kind of like to give like a little bit of context to why the laws are important and how is it relevant to fighting cybercrime and like having better cybersecurity. So whenever a country is trying to kind of upgrade its cybersecurity and like, you know, have a better protection for its economy, for the population, etc., there is like a... 
like a bunch of measures that they take and that they put in place. So first, for example, they have like a national cybersecurity strategy, like for example, the one that you have here in the UK, where they say these are the threats, these are the vulnerabilities, this is the implementation plan, this is what we're doing, this is like our strategy. And then they create, for example, specific centers like a computer emergency response teams, like for example, the National Cybersecurity Center here in the UK. These centers are just meant to deal with this particular threat and be just on top of it. They also um, have like, you know, international cooperation measures with other countries, because as you know, cybercrime is really one of the most transnational crimes. So it's never really confined to just one country, it's like cross borders. And so also like there are like, you know, public private measures that they do, like partnering with industry, because it's never just about the government. And then also like one of the important things that they do is that they put or enact legislative measures in place, laws that play an essential role in fighting cybercrime. Where is the sort of threat coming from before we get into what the laws are doing? You know, is this internal? Is this external? Because you say it's obviously based around sort of like like financial crimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, are you talking about like other states or is it individuals? You know, who are these laws aimed at? First of all, attribution in cybercrime is a very challenging <laughs> thing, right? Uh, and you can never really say for certain mm-hmm. who is doing it. But normally, financially motivated crimes are done by like organized criminals, yeah. right? Like the ones that they use the dark web, etc. Mm-hmm. And they do that just for the sake of uh, getting money. Whereas the state-sponsored attacks, like attacks like uh, such as interfering in elections, like, mm-hmm. you know, propaganda, uh, attacking national infrastructure, Infrastructure, critical national infrastructure, like a power grid. These have like different motivations, mm-hmm. and these are normally done by yeah. states or by state-sponsored actors. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that all of these Gulf states that they're joining up to create these laws? Well, so basically they did this this individually, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like at the national level, they said, okay, well, this is growing. What shall we do? Um, let's, okay, let's create the laws because mm-hmm. everyone else is doing it. Let's get like better cybersecurity technology, which is something that they um, really invest a lot in. So if you look at like how they fight cybercrime in the Gulf, it's primarily through buying technology, investing in technology. Mm-hmm. So according to a recent paper, they're like in the top 10 in terms of like investing cybersecurity technology, but the bottom 50 when it comes to training. So that creates some sort of false sense of security, if you know what I mean. Are they shipping in experts from externally? Yes, I mean, outsourcing is a very big thing in in, in the GCC countries, not just for that, but Mm -hmm. for everything really. So they are really recent countries and they're trying like, you know, to do different things, but they rely a lot on on, like outsource expertise. So yes, you know, like they're really very big investors when it comes to that, but it's never really about just about the technology. If you don't follow it up with like, you know, like a national strategy with like good laws, etc., then you're not really creating a cyber safety framework. Yeah. And have they been particularly hit recently over the last couple of years? So they are hit on a regular basis. But the problem with cybercrime is that you often don't have really uh, accurate uh, figures on yeah. how many crimes, etc. For many reasons, a because there aren't like you know kind of a regular, uh, uh, basically, um, or let's say organizations or independent institutions doing that on a regular basis, mm-hmm. providing the data, and b some customers or like some sorry some victims are uh, 
unaware most of the times that they've been hit by a crime mm-hmm. or if, even if they do, especially in that part of the world, they are reluctant to inform about it because reputation is a very big thing there. And they think that this is actually, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't say people will lose trust mm-hmm. in our um, business, say, or whatever. So just keep it to ourselves and, and deal with it. So when you don't disclose what's going on, it makes it even more difficult to fight cybercrime. Yeah, okay. And so what are the new laws that they've brought in? So they've put in place cybercrime laws uh, dealing with cybercrime as as we know it, like kind of dealing with like, you know, issues such as like hacking, like, you know, like ransomware, things like that. But the main thing that they did, which is a bit um, different, and this is why, you know, we said, um, okay, we should look into that and see what's going on there. So when we looked into the laws, there are two things that we noticed. First, something that has to do with the structure of the law, and the second thing with the content of the law. So when it comes to structure, for example, you need to have in place, like in in the laws, there need to be um, you know provisions on criminalization, basically saying this is a crime and this is like you know the sanction. But also you need to have like provisions on like how do you deal with electronic evidence because you know and the tradi- tradition crime, you rely on eyewitnesses, mm-hmm. right? You rely on physical evidence like a gun or knife, whatever. In cybercrime, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, the evidence is very volatile, it's digital, and you have to be very, like, you know, um, quick in terms of, you know, how you investigate it and deal with it. And you have there has to be, like, some clear guidance on how you do that. So that doesn't really exist in the laws there in most of the countries. They don't have like provisions on jurisdiction, like, you know, who does what and mm-hmm. who belongs to whom, on how they do like, you know, their procedural powers, etc. So in terms of structure, there's a lot of elements that are missing. So basically, what does that mean? That means that when the police and when the prosecutors want to take the kind of investigate cybercrime cases, they look at the laws and the judiciary as well, the judges, they look at the laws and they don't have the necessary guidance to help them do their jobs. So in many cases, there has been some mishandling of the evidence because they didn't know how to deal with it and they tampered with it, etc. And they basically jeopardized the entire investigation. So we're saying the laws are there to give you guidance, mm-hmm. to like, you know, tell you how you de- do that. But also, other than guiding and deterring and all of these things that laws normally do, they're also very important to say, this is how we combat cybercrime while uh, protecting fundamental uh, f- uh, freedoms mm-hmm. and rights, such as, you know, your right to pri- privacy, your right to freedom of expression, etc. So I can't really just come and like investigate and like, you know, get access to your computer. There has to be some uh, human rights uh, guarantees for the prosecutors, for the police, etc., in doing their job. So in the GCC, this is not really there. Mm. And that's a very problematic because it doesn't really help the police do their job. Yeah. The other thing that we uh, also uh, looked at is the issue of content. So when it comes to content, and as you know, without going into too much details, international law is clear on what content should be prohibited, like stuff related to child abuse, we call it pornography, or um, incitement to, to genocide or um, terrorism and things like that. But every every other thing is allowed. You have your right, you know, you have your right to freedom of expression. There are some restrictions, but these restrictions have to, you know, they have a really very serious threshold um, before the state, the government is allowed to um, restrict them. Mm-hmm. So um, 
when you look at the content of the uh, cybercrime laws in the Gulf, there's a, like many, many provisions that elaborate on uh, specific expression, specific uh, conduct, content related, yeah, not, mm-hmm. has nothing to do with like computer, etc. but just any expression, online expression, that they consider that as cybercrime. So, for example, criticizing the ruler is a cybercrime. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, uh, uh, anything to do like organizing a protest without a permission is a cybercrime. Uh, retweeting some Sometimes in some contexts is a cyber crime. Taking pictures without asking people is a cyber crime. So they expand the definition of cyber crime to really very, very big array of uh, of uh, content. And does that reflect crimes in real life in quotation marks? So, you know, is criticising the ruler to your friend in front of a policeman, you know, if you say it, is mm. that illegal? You know, do, do those cyber crime rules reflect other sort of more solid solid I don't know how to explain it. yeah well basically like in order to know what's permissible and what's not you know you look at so how do you get your human rights you get mm. your human rights from the human rights declaration from the yeah. UN international covenant on civil and political rights etc there you have absolute right to your your opinion you know mm. to express yourself the way you want some things are c- considered as criminal speech and you shouldn't do them right but criticizing the rulers is actually something that is protected by mm-hmm. the international instruments because the public figures you know are you know should be criticized or like have people have the right to look at their uh, performance at the way they're handling public affairs and they have the right to criticize them and mm. to engage in a constructive uh, uh, interaction so really like you know the, the issue of like you know you can't criticize them you can't you know um, engage in any sort of uh, uh, this that kind of limits really loads of how much you participate in public affairs but that's new in that sense. Not really. Not really. Not okay. really. So the thing is, uh, in countries, and this is not just particular to the Gulf countries, in countries that have historically restricted uh, freedom of speech, mm-hmm. like in, like you know, like in media, or whatever, like you know, on, on TV, etc., that have um, like really very high censorship. They actually did the same when it came to online okay. sphere by the mean of cybercrime laws as one of the things mm-hmm. that they used. So basically, this is not new at all. Yeah. But basically, okay, so this is how we've been censoring the, the basically the, the narrative. And when it came to uh, the online sphere, we were using cybercrime laws to do that. That's also, if you're policing tweets and mm. retweets, that's a huge amount of man hours and manpower. That's a very good point, Agnes, actually, because normally, like, you know, even in countries like the UK, the... Um, people who are skilled to deal with cybercrime are very scarce. Mm. So, and the GCC is even like, you know, is even worse. So you've got like, you know, just only a few people who can deal with it. And you are actually just orienting all this like energy and all this like manpower to look into content as opposed Mm. to fighting the growing cybercrime. So basically, you know, you already started with um, limited resources, but this limited resource being used to go after tweets, to go after like Facebook content and so on. And what are the um, what's what can you face if you're if you're charged with something like this? Really hefty uh, sanctions, right? Uh, that could get to life imprisonment. Wow! Uh, so you've, it's a combination of fines and imprisonment, and get to can get to life. For example, in the UAE, if you try to overthrow the regime or if you do something that is considered there like very serious, so you get like you know uh, we have in the paper like a table where we kind of look at all these like controversial provisions and uh, try and create some sort of like this is the picture there. 
because obviously you know it's difficult to say this is what's going on in mm. these six countries right like yeah. you know there are always some nuances and like some differences but if you look at this table see okay like you know if you defame the religion this is how much you get you know you'll be fined in let's say this country this is how much you'll be fined in this country this is how much like you know jail time you'll be doing and that also like basically goes against the principle of uh, of international uh, human rights law because you know like measures should be or like restrictions should be proportional and necessary mm-hmm. right uh, so when you see about how like these vague provisions these vague laws are there like the huge discretion that the governments have like the very big like you know like fines and imprisonment you see that these laws are actually at odds with international law and the wording sounds quite loose Exactly, exactly. That is <laughs> so that is a very of... that is a very actually uh, good observation. Um, the the wording is very loose, and that again goes against you know what the international law say because they say the law should be very clear mm. so that as citizens we know what's permissible, what's not, and we regulate our behavior accordingly. Yeah. Right. So this is not the case. The other thing is that because it's very loose, it allows for creative interpretation of the law. Mm. I'll give you an example. So the cybercrime law in the UAE was enacted in 2012, right? Last year, remember when the blockade thing started mm-hmm. with Qatar, etc., was yeah. 2017, June 2017. A public prosecutor in the UAE issued a statement saying anyone who shows sympathy with Qatar on social media or any online mean is considered a cybercrime. So basically, this is a new interpretation of what cybercrime means. Yeah. But because the laws are quite vague and not very specific, then you know governments can reinterpret their laws according to the current circumstances. And how many people... I mean, roughly, Mm. how many people have been convicted or prosecuted? Many people, many many people. So it doesn't just include like human rights activists and like, you know, journalists, etc. Regular people who just like, you know, tweeting, not necessarily just political tweets or whatever. Sometimes people wear jade because of like some uh, humoristic or satire uh, tweets. And this basically is becoming like quite unfortunately uh, common. And how how did the population, I mean, obviously it's very difficult to know, but how do these populations feel about this? Mm. Is it seen as unjust or is it sort of a continuation of you know, their personal state's policy on other stuff too. Yeah, no, that's a very good point, actually. So, Agnes, when this, like, entire, let's say, cultural revolution yeah. that was brought forward by social media happened, people were, like, thrilled about it. Like, you know, we didn't have any means to, like, express ourselves. And now anyone can basically be a publisher, right? Mm-hmm. And especially in the Gulf, the social media penetration is massive. It's really one of the highest in the world. So people were thrilled, excited that they were able to say whatever they want. And sorry, do you mean, like, Twitter? Do you mean... When you say social media in the Gulf is really Twitter is very high, yeah. uh, but also like you know uh, Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, YouTube channels, anything that has to do with like being online yeah. and like you know possessing. Like in Kuwait, if I'm not mistaken, the people who own a mobile or like broadband with like you know with internet in it, it's like two hundred percent. So kind of like on average, two f- mobile phones per person. Yeah. So it's really very very yeah. like you know, uh, and definitely much higher than. So if the average of internet penetration is fifty percent in the world it's 71 percent in the gulf so it's relatively high Uh, so people were like kind of thrilled for the opportunity you you know women who you know had to kind of uh, follow the traditions etc 
and like couldn't do many things started using like Instagram and like um, Facebook etc to start their own businesses from their homes mm-hmm. so by that you know you create new generation of entrepreneurships the rulers also started to engage with their citizenry all of that was great mm-hmm. but at the same time some people were like well actually we don't like that you know like everyone can say anything and like the women and men just like you know just interacting like no 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 there must be some ro- laws there must be some rules on what you can say online so it wasn't just driven by mm-hmm. the government some people were actually asking for it but also another important thing to know and that we talk about it in the paper is that the laws happened around the Arab uprisings, mm. right? So that's, you know, it, it's very easy to argue that one of the main reasons why, one of the main reason why these laws were created was to actually, like, stop any potential spillover from the region into um, into the Gulf. Because, you know, as you know, um, in Egypt, in Tunisia, etc., social media played, in, played a very important role. So when people start adopting it, some people actually started calling uh, Twitter as the UAE is Tahrir Square. So this is how much they started to engage social media. So the government could argue that they were very much uh, aware of that mm-hmm. and they wanted to kind of like cut it before it spreads um, to a point of no return. Is there anything that the Gulf states have brought in, either content-wise or sort of legislation-wise, that is you think is sort of leading the way or is like innovative in a way that the West isn't? You know, when when it comes to these things, you can't really reinvent the wheel, Mm. right? There are like, you know, some things that you need to include in the laws. There is, for example, the Budapest Convention that most countries have followed uh, when they came up with their legislation. So you look around, you know, at the different laws and you see like, you know, okay, you know, this is all criminalized in this country, this this country. And this basically is important to eliminate safe havens, right? Because what I considered a crime, you should consider it a crime as well. So we can cooperate, so I can send you, we can extradite criminals, etc. So um, you can't really like, you know, go like completely create and say, okay, this is like, (laughs) no, you have to kind of follow certain things, which obviously like, you know, the Gulf are not doing that uh, completely, Mm -hmm. but they are creative, if you will, if you want, in the content thing, leading the way positively, that is another matter. (laughs) But yeah, definitely create when it comes to criminalizing content. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it's a plus, isn't it? What, who are you going to be looking at next? Which countries you mean? Mm. So this is uh, so this project is still ongoing. Yeah. Uh, so we've done this bit, but we're also looking at like other uh, cybersecurity uh, issues. So we're doing like next a report on the maritime sector in the Gulf Ooh. and looking whether you know like there are like proper cybersecurity measures in place. We had a report on the digital economy because they've done a great job in terms of digital economy and how do you protect it? How do you have like better cybersecurity there? So we're kind of doing different things there. In terms of uh, other countries, in 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 this particular topic uh well we'll we'll yet to see but we have like you know just several ongoing projects in india and commonwealth countries and yeah all, all, all around the world oh well joyce thank you so much for coming to speak to us and you can read joyce's paper on the website at chathamhouse.org yes thank you very much Okay, well, I'm delighted to be able to present a rather different topic for undercurrents this week. Um, We're going literary. I hope you can cope. (laughs) Cling on for dear life. I'm joined by two 
eminent publishers and editors to talk about a new book from Pyrene Press called Shatila Stories, which is a novel created by refugees. And I'm joined by Micah Tsiervogel, who is the publisher at Pyrene Press, um, and Suhe Halal, who is the editor of Shatila Stories. Thanks very much for coming in today. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Um, great. Uh, Micah, perhaps you could start just by telling me a bit about where the idea for Shatila Stories came from. Yeah, so Shatila Stories is basically a love story um, between Adam, who mm-hmm. is a young man, 1920, who arrives with his family from Syria in Shatila, and Shaza, who is a young woman, a couple of years older than Adam, uh, but she actually was, uh, she's of Palestinian origin, and she was born in the mm-hmm. camp. And Adam, of course, initially struggles hugely, uh, you know, because wherever refugees arrive, they're not welcomed. So in Shatila, it's very interesting. I mean, Shatila also, you, you, the Palestinians, of course, are not happy with the Syrians at all right. uh, because, you know, they were living an OK life. And suddenly this, the you know, the, the numbers of inhabitants has at least doubled, if not tripled or quadrupled. Um, so they have to share their space. I don't mm. think we'd be very happy about that either. Certainly not. Um, so, yeah, so it's a love story. And it is not just love story. It is a story that describes women's struggle mm-hmm. uh, and how they come over it by being um, strong and, you know, and it is Reham's stories who fl- fled Syria and went to Lebanon with her family and divorce her husband. <laughs> now we let out the plot yeah. part. We are not allowed to do that. Yeah. Uh, cut, cut this one. You always so. cut that. Oh, that is good. It's a nice little too element there. Yeah, I think it's good. Okay. So in 2015, when the Calais refugee crisis hit our headlines, mm. I suddenly realized because Pyrene specializes in translated fiction and the problem with translated fiction is that you can only choose from what's out on the market. Sure. And when the Calais refugee crisis hit our headlines and there was this amazing outcry of all the hordes that were, you know, stampeding us apparently, uh, heading towards um, our little island, I suddenly thought we need to hear other stories mm. than that. So I decided uh, to create a series called Pyrene Now, where I commission writers to respond with fiction to current and urgent political subjects. And Shatila Stories is part of that Mm. series. So with the Cali refugee crisis, I actually chose two writers, professional writers based here in this country, in, in England, and sent them to the refugee camp in order to cr- listen to the refugee stories, but then create a fictional piece. Mm. That was fine. It's a good book <laughs> called Breach. Um, however, I then also thought, well, yeah, I, but that still means I'm not actually, we're not giving the refugees their voices. You know, I still have somebody else talk about them. Mm. Uh, so this is where the idea from uh, about Shatila stories came from. So I approached a Lebanese-based, a Syrian but Lebanese-based NGO called uh, Basman Zaytuna. Mm-hmm. They operate cultural centers and schools uh, from within big refugee camps. I approached them and said, I have this idea of uh, uh, to collaborate with uh, Syrian and Palestinian refugees. Um, so they then ran a startup course, finding the uh, nine writers. And then Soheya and I went out to uh, Shatila last year. I think it was in June for a week. And 
taught these nine people who had never written fiction before of mm. various different school background in a three-day amazing crash course, the basic tools of fiction writing. Wow. And mm. uh, perhaps Sahaya can say what that was like. Yeah, please do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, when... Um When we went there, we were a little bit cautious about what we're getting because before we went to Beirut, we had some examples from those right from I think it were about twenty people wrote mm-hmm. uh, about their names, and they sent you know what they wrote to us, and we chose ten people mm-hmm. from the samples they sent. And they weren't the best, but we chose the best from the worst. For the best, uh, the, the, the least. The least worst. worst. <laughs> the least <laughs> worst. Yes. And we were a little bit cautious about it, but we both believed in it very much. And that helped us a lot. And when we went there, when we arrived, nobody from the writer were there because they didn't keep the time up. We said nine o'clock, our first meeting, and they didn't arrive on time mm. for different reasons. And we we started introduce ourselves to them, and they introduced themselves to us, and we started the process how to engage them with writing. We started reading stories, short stories from different uh, writers and discussing it. And um, at the end of the first day, we felt we all engaged very well together, mm. and we worked very well together first day. Uh, but in the beginning, it was a little bit of, um, I don't know how to put it, but they weren't sure, we weren't sure either about mm. the process and how we're getting on together. And also when they didn't arrive on time, was a little bit, oh, what are we doing here, kind of. <laughs> well, you see, you have a German and a Syrian <laughs> trying, you know, I mean, Sat it feels like, camp. yes. The, the, we were know. very serious <laughs> about it. And for us, it was... You know, we believed in this project and we wanted to work. For them, it was in the beginning. I thought they thought I. That's my my own opinion. They thought it will be like you know, it's kind of activities and mm. you know, they write a little bit and that's it. But we were serious. We had this in our mind because before we went there, we sat. You know, me and Micah, we sat and we produced the. Workshop with them that we we schedule it. We knew what we want to teach them, what we're going to mm. read, discussing how to write short stories. Uh, but you also you go there and you you deal with emotional stuff as well. You know the the camp itself is quite overwhelming. Just mm. being inside the camp, yeah. and you're uh, not could you dealing. Tell us, could you tell us a bit about the camp actually? Um, I mean, from my point of view, I. For me, this project was more personal than, you know, so, so like career because I came from Syria and the refugee crisis affected me quite badly. And I felt I am, you know, I am helpless, really. I can't do anything to those people. But when Micah approached me, I felt very positive about it. I felt like, oh, that's the right things to respond to the crisis, to do something creative and give these people an opportunity to knock on their creativity and just, you know, um, bring it out. Because I do believe in creativity. I do believe things mm. like this will will change eventually, but not, you know, not immediate change. And the idea of going to the camp and seeing people from where I come from, 
um, it was quite painful for me and very upsetting. The camp itself has history as well. It's not just any camp, it's Shatila camp. You right. know, it has quite big history there. And now is more people displaced and more suffering. Of course, the camp itself, we hear a lot about the camp. So many people said, don't walk on your own. None of the taxi drivers take you to the camp. They drop you outside the camp because it has quite bad reputation. But I looked at it from different point. I looked at it when I saw people there who are desperate. People, poor people, very friendly, very upset, upset about the situation. And the camp, you know, was built in 1949 after the two... Uh, get about 3,000 refugees, Palestinian refugees, and mm. now has more than around twenty to 40,000 refugees yeah. after the crisis. From and it's Syria. been a continuous camp since uh, 1949. Oh, yeah. Been, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people being there, they have their children and their grandchildren and, wow. their yeah. <laughs> and they still have the key to return to Palestine. Camp is... Very small, very crowded, the narrow streets, the electricity cables everywhere, dirty and smelly as well. You smell the sewage and with lovely cooking as well. It's a combination uh, between those two. Uh, but in general, people are very nice, very, very friendly. Um, how, that's how I looked at the camp. And what was your impression of? I mean, I think very similar to Suheya. I mean, in mm-hmm. some ways, I didn't think deliberately, didn't think too much actually about this. In, mm-hmm. in, in, sort of, I mean, it, or where we're going. I just wanted to make this project work. For me, it sure. was very clear we're just going to make this work. Yeah. Even though, I mean, yes, once we had when we had the the writing samples, um, my heart did drop, and I thought, oh oh my God, where we're going with this. So we didn't go out there to do a humanitarian thing. Mm. It wasn't just a creative writing workshop. We didn't just say, we want to unleash your creativity. (laughs) We went there with a very clear aim and um, we paid. So basically the deal was, um, and they knew that also from the start, if the ones um, who would stick out the the writing course and we initially we said, you have to stick out the writing course and then we choose from you the best. And those ones would have to deliver uh, a 4,000 word story. And once you deliver that, then we will pay you and we will make we will ensure that you will get published uh, or be part of of this book. What's really interesting is so once we so on day at the end of day two, that was really our turning point because suddenly everyone was so engaged. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's when we then decided, okay, we're going to say to all of them, here's the deal. You nine, uh, you know, you have to come tomorrow. But then also any of you who delivers the 4000 words will get paid and we will make sure that somehow your some of your stories will be used in the uh, in the novel at the end of the day mm. uh, and the book will be published in English and in Arabic um, so it was yeah we we wanted something out of that and, and on top of it we were also very clear in terms of so we said it has to be fiction it can be based on real life I mean we talked about what is fiction and what is not fiction we don't want your flight stories because 
we, you know, our newspapers are full of flight stories and somehow our traumas, I feel, are always very similar. I mean, mm. human traumas. So we don't want your flight stories and the stories have to happen in the camp. And of course, we got one flight story. We knew we would get anyway one flight story and that's fine. We just didn't want nine flight sure. stories. Yeah. So I, I feel, you know, because I've been thinking a lot about also thinking to, to take this, you know, to our uh, onto the next level and about our next project. What and why did this work so fantastically? Because both Suheya and I, we have to say we were absolutely amazed about the stories we then eventually got from them. Because, I mean, the, again, you have to imagine. So here we are, we're imagining a creative writing course, like probably, you know, we all sit on at nice tables and so on. I mean, that wasn't the case at all. We were stuffed in some, yeah, windowless room, absolutely hot. There was some dance party, sort of children's dance group going on next door. Um, no one, of course, has a computer. Um, so, but eventually, the writers, because we said we can't, I mean, we couldn't read the handwriting, so they lined up for, for the only computer in the centre. Um, you know, and some literally they wrote it out by hand and then typed it up in order to send us the four thousand words. They have to deal with power cuts, you know, and then also just to put it again into context. I mean, even while we were there, um, you know, one participant's father died back in Syria. The other one that had a grandmother slipping badly in one of the alleyways. I mean, the human um, tragedies going on all the way. And at the same time, Suheya and I we had to sort of run run the business you know we had to say oh i'm very sorry to hear this but okay and they were all pulling their weight um so when we got the stories um there were i think four four very good the stories four very good ones very and good the stories we literally we i mean where we just thought you know even i mean even here when you run a creative writing course for let's say two or three years where people have all sorts of tools and and um, they don't. I mean, th those were really stories. And again, I thought, why did it work? It's because, yes, we didn't just run it for fun. Um, we had a business in mind, yeah. and 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 also that the writers or the people had stories to tell. And they were honest. They yeah. didn't want to pretend to be somebody else. They honest right. about themselves. They honest about their stories. And I think that's very, very, you know, you can feel it. It's my question for both of you, but what do you think is the the particular advantage of fiction as a as a medium for talking about sort of what are really kind of political events or current affairs? I mean, why why did you choose to do short stories as opposed to a collection of essays, for example? Is there something about the form? So when you, I mean, in my view, uh, when you write nonfiction, you have to you look at reality. Right. And you try to reflect and respond to reality, whatever that is, to, to basically the facts out there. Well, I think literature, when you create literature, yes, of course, you, you take in, you, you, you know, you have to start somewhere. You start with reality, with the facts, but you then lift off from that. Mm. You don't have to get yeah. stuck there. And I think that's where sometimes things suddenly in inside happens. I mean, so... With Shatilla stories, once we finished the book, I remember, so I thought, so I took a step back and I thought, okay, what have we actually created here? If you read it from, from beginning to end. And what struck me is what this book is actually about is, is a book of immense hope. And yes, there's a lot of, lot of tragedy in there. 
but it finishes on on a on a point of hope and also the voices throughout because these are the the, the voices of the writers which we try to you know keep as as much as possible again there's that energy and that that hope that mm. there will be a future mm. and perhaps it might not be the future for let's say Shaza in this story but there is the future for Reham you know who takes Shaza's job and I think again that isn't that wasn't a deliberate choice by one or the other writer to do that that actually is actually a plot point that just happened to come together and I suddenly thought symbolically what it, what does that actually symbolize it symbolizes despite all the tragedies or the because of the tragedies they're actually opening up new possibilities new opportunities I mean Reham is a very interesting character if she mm. had stayed in Syria she would not have had opportunity to, to step out of marriage and just divorce and her get her husband, job yeah get her a job but also I think um, you know if you write essays you yeah like what Micah said you need facts and you need you know you need um, ideas and you you need quite logical argument to present your you know the cri- you know the crisis or the mm. issue but, but with fiction you you know you knock on something really deep inside you which you you free yourself from all this complex ideas but you 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 talk about something inside which is subconscious more mm. than conscious and i think that's very important for them for those people to get all this from the subconscious out so obviously there's a there's a mix of you know, you've got nine different writers were they also from a mix of Palestinian and Syrian backgrounds yeah and in when you were doing the workshop and in the pieces they eventually wrote was did you find that there were like very different experiences that came across because of their different backgrounds or was it present in the discussion like when you were in these workshops or were people kind of just united by what they were doing what's interesting is in in the workshops we didn't discuss no we didn't what discuss we, what they're going to write right okay Everyone. we only discussed how to, to write. write yeah we, th- nobody knows what the other person wrote but they are oppressed people all mm. of them exactly they all suffer from whatever they, you have syrian you have syrian palestinian and you have lebanese palestinians and they all are oppressed people by whatever but you feel the pain but the interesting thing is sometimes they are against each other because the Syrian came and the Syrian Palestinian came to the camp and the Lebanese Palestinian are cramped because uh, the details of the camp changed for them who been who lived and born there there is a lot of conflicts and complexity because of politics and because of the space and because they don't have anything you know they don't they can't raise above to the, you know to the people who are above them who is mm. oppressed oppressor but they raise against each other because they can't do anything they are all refugees without any status yeah. you know that's really important to understand um it's it's um you know even even the the Lebanese Palestinians who lived they don't have any rights they can't work they have no rights to work they have mm-hmm. you know um very 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 limited rights uh, basically and um these are all refugees and when I mean, that is 
Yeah. Yeah, and that's a uniting, that is a uniting emotion. I mean, which I think is also, you know, thinking about sort of more in political terms, you know, again, I mean, this idea of that refugees, I mean, thinking also here, refugees arrive and then we eventually will send them back, I think is, you know, that's the wrong way of thinking about yeah. it, is, is actually we need to find a way of integrating um, everyone who arrives because borders are, I think, this idea of nation state is shifting, the meaning of that is shifting. And um, so going to, to a place like Shatila, you know, where in some ways you have refugees that, you know, these are families who've been refugees without status since the 1940s. They are in the yeah. third generation. You know, this is not, this really brings it home, this idea of unless we as as we meaning you and i who are who have you know status who live as as citizens except that we have to create a system that will allow everyone to become citizens um i mean that is really also what what part of shatila is about you know it's a, it's a cry in some ways i think to to say we have to change something here mm. you know yeah. internationally not just in lebanon but our attitude has to change yeah so are you going to take this on are you are there more books in the pipeline our oh. next stop is syria okay mm -hmm. we're planning to go to syria mm -hmm. and uh, do similar project but maybe we'll see how it you know we haven't finalized everything but that's the plan to go to syria and run workshop and produce a, a book this, of course, is with, with people who fled yes. um, the war. And we now want to, to find people who have stayed. Yes, okay. And mm -hmm. to see what their imagination will what produce. And, um, you know, we were already we're talking about what sort of yeah, parameter we're, we're going to give. And there, of course, it will be very strong. We don't want politics. You yeah. know, we don't want to have a political statement here of what group you belong to. Mm. And it would be fantastic to have a mixed access to a mixed group, um, you know, leaving politics aside. <laughs> yeah, because so many people don't want to be involved in politics, you see, especially in Syria. They they, they don't want to be involved in politics. Yeah. You know, they don't want to give opinions. They, they had enough. Not they have, they not interested. Some people not interested. They just found themselves in this situation. And that's what interests us to when we go there, we'll find, you know, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, people experienced what happened and they can you know, they can knock on their creativity inside them and something will come up. Well, I look forward to reading it. Thank you very much for coming in. Well, thank, thank you. you. That's it for this episode. Although, obviously, something really big happened last week. Oh, yeah, we can't we can't leave without updating you on uh, some very important news <laughs> in the life of Frumston. <laughs> yeah. So, Agnes, tell us about your trip to the Chinese. Restaurant. Yes. yes. It was wonderful. So Ben organised all of this. And yeah, what, there were 13 of us? 13, yeah. 13 of unlucky. us. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I would say there was quite a lot of pressure when the first dish came out mm. and I had to had to go for that with 12 people watching me, being like, how is it? Do you like it? But yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I would say I liked the stuff that I thought I was going to like and the stuff I wasn't sure about I was less fond of. <laughs> 
Um, but it was delicious. <laughs> but you're super adventurous. You did try everything. I did, yeah, to be everything. Fair. Um, yeah. Which obviously uh, I you, have to, you have to go, to go all in for sure. Um, and our colleague, you know, was ordering away in Mandarin. Yeah, that was very helpful. Which actually. is incredibly helpful. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was, it was delicious. Well, I am delighted. Yeah. So well, now thanks. we just have to thanks find for out the thing. Us in that bit of workplace bullying. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> we just now have to find the thing that you haven't had or don't like <laughs> or whatever. That and then, is nothing, mate. Yeah, well, we've all learned, haven't I'm we? Super keep, I'm super worldly. <laughs> keep our mouths shut yeah. on this stuff. <laughs> Otherwise, things come out. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and rate us so that other people can find us too. And follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a couple of really exciting interviews. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>